Hello everyone, my name is Neha and welcome to Dropping Your Armor, where we listen to stories from thinkers, doers and dreamers, all in the hope of unlocking our infinite human potential. In this episode, you'll hear the story of Mansi Jasuja. She is such a phenomenal person who brings so much love, joy, humor and color to everything she does. She's worked in different sectors, starting with architecture and then going into urban environmental management and working at international organizations such as the UN. She's a coach, she's a mother, she's an activist, and she brings all of that to her work at Conscious Business, which is a company dedicated to supporting businesses to adopt a more conscious approach that creates true prosperity and harmony for people, communities, and nature. As always, we started with exploring the rich tapestry of Mansi's life story and what put her on the path that she's on today. Against this backdrop, we examined conscious capitalism as a new system for doing business and discussed the ways in which organizations can adopt this approach. For me, this conversation was both insightful and uplifting, and I do hope you enjoy it as much as I did. So, hey, Mansi, welcome to Dropping Your Armor. How are you doing? Very well, thanks. Thanks for having me here. I'm so glad you're here. There's so much I want to discuss with you because the first call with you was just so amazing. It got me thinking for many, many, many days after that. Um, But before we do, maybe let's take a moment to introduce you to the listeners. So would you want to say a few words about yourself, who you are, what you do, and what's your mission in life? Um. Well, that's a tough one to begin with already. <laughs> and even though I knew this would probably come, I didn't really prepare uh, for it. But uh, let's see. Well, um, I'm, uh, I, you know, I'm a Sikh growing up in India who's been in the Netherlands since 20 years. So I'm quite a mixed DNA in that way. But in fact, I really don't like to name boundaries of countries. And I just say I'm a human being who loves working from my heart and uh, reminding people how wonderful it is to be human and with all our failures and all our wonderful gifts that we have. So I love nature and uh, joy and play and dancing and music and all the good things in life and also the not so good things. Um, And I work with uh, many different elements, a lot with people because I love people. Uh, working with trainings and uh, facilitating processes and, well, uh, last few years with conscious business, helping businesses transition. So I guess we'll be talking about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. So, Perfect. And maybe to add, uh, yeah, I have two lovely children uh, who are also mixed, half Dutch, half Indian. And they are literally, well, they are the joy of my life, of course. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's lovely. Thank you for that intro. And we will, I mean, you know me now, I just sort of plunged into the hard questions and we will plunge into the big questions in this uh, soon enough. But before we do, I wanted to start us off with a light check-in question. And for, for, for this conversation, I picked this one. So what's a trend that you're really glad went away or one that you wish would really, that one that you, you would really wish would go away? Oh, I, I guess we could cover a whole podcast on this. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, if I have to name one, um, let's say at an individual level, it would be uh, the trend of uh, weekend getaways, flying with the airplane to go in for weekend getaways. I really think COVID did us good with that, um, mm-hmm. with cutting down those habits. 
and trend. Um, but I think at a broader level, it would be uh, not working in silos anymore and really start to talk across uh, different uh, subjects and uh, sectors because I think that's really needed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, those are good ones. I, I also, uh, when I was reflecting on it, thinking about it in terms of individual and also something a bit broader related to work. And for me, it was really, um, one is I am so glad this trend of updating, you know, your life every half hour on social media is going away or gone, or maybe I don't know about it because I'm not that present on social media. So yeah, for me, that's, it's, I'm happy that that's sort of fading away and I don't have to see Facebook posts of people's lunches. Um, but on a broader level, one trend that I wish would really go away is this conception of work as this nine to five, 40 hour thing that we do um, and very compartmentalized, right? This is what we do and this is what we work. And and I, I also really loved your intro because of that, because you you introduced yourself as a whole person, not just by what you do, but who you are. And I would love for work to be more a part of our life and not be this divide of work life and so on. Yeah, that's so close to my heart. It's actually at the heart of what I do, just being human uh, and not saying, now I'm at work, so now I'm somebody else, you know? Exactly, yeah. And I leave my empathy at home. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. So good, yeah, all right. So um, I would be very happy if all four of those trends actually go away. Um, but yeah. in the meantime, <laughs> let's let's talk about you and let's hear about your story. Um, and I'm really um, curious to learn about, you know, where you grew up, what were some of the values and beliefs that were ingrained in you as a child early on and how those evolved over time to where you are right now and the work that you do right now? Um, wow, what a, uh, again, a powerful question. Uh, and actually, I love this because most times when I have to introduce myself to people, I always tell a little story of uh, who I am and where I'm coming from, because um, I think in that way, ancestral lineage is also very important. Not that I'm going to tell you that whole story, of course not. But I grew up uh, in Delhi in a Sikh family uh, with strong values around equity and justice and harmony and compassion um, and sharing. So, you know, Sikh community is very hardworking and um, yeah, known for strong values. Uh, what stood up for me for from a very young age was that while we were taught these values uh, through our stories, through narrative of uh, what uh, was taught in school as well, I didn't really see it happening in practice to uh, to some to many levels. You know, uh, for example, I noticed the role of women is different, uh, and you know, while we are supposed to be equal, but my brother has other privileges than I do. And I think you probably uh, recognize these things as well. Yes, I'm um, vigorously nodding as you're speaking because yeah. <laughs> it connects so much to my experience. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but also uh, across social classes uh, at a young age, I was uh, warned not to play with children from uh, people from a lower uh, economic class. Uh, of course, I did. Uh, my little rebellion was starting to happen already back then. Um, but I... I think what I remember the most is at the at the age of four already starting to uh, notice all the garbage on the streets and notice all the uh, pollution which is coming and picking up the garbage and you know trying to find a place to place it. 
And I think that really was the start of me being an environmentalist and being conscious of uh, how that the boundaries don't stop at your home. So, you, you know, we, we are a community, we are a society, and the garbage doesn't disappear just because you put it outside your home. And at that point, at a young age, I didn't notice it. I mean, I couldn't give words to it. But as I grew up, I, I became an architect uh, because my family wanted me to be a doctor. So I became an architect, of course, uh, which, <laughs> which is very logical. Um, but that really opened up uh, my mind to uh, the uh, to life because architecture is so much about uh, everything, poetry and history and art and structures and mathematics and society and culture, everything, you know. And uh, I think that's where I really learned to notice the patterns that exist across different uh, sectors and uh, learning to appreciate that, how things weave into each other, um, into this big tapestry that is life. Uh, but still, I was very much, uh, you know, brought up with this idea of uh, success and safety, uh, you know, coming from a country where uh, there's not that much social security or safety. So you really have to work hard to uh, get to a secure life. Um, and I came to the Netherlands uh, to study in my master's, urban environmental management. No surprise, environment was still very key in what I wanted to do. And uh, started working internationally with uh, organizations such as the UN and pretty soon got very disillusioned with uh, the way the work uh, was was structured, the way uh, the expectations were from people, the way uh, hierarchy was very embedded and bureaucracy and um, so many things, where to, where to begin. Um, but yeah, there were so many moments where uh, my main question, which I was holding was, okay, who is this for? What am I working? Who is this helping? Uh, and India had been working in slums uh, and we did a lot of work there. And I noticed how, despite not being really rich, uh, people are super happy, uh, you know, but I also noticed the inequality and I felt like, yeah, I need to do something to make it uh, better for the world, for the women, for, for people, for children. Uh, how do we give them access to the same things I had access to? So I was sensing my privilege there. And um, in the end, I couldn't get those answers working in those organizations. So I had mm -hmm. to leave, which is another story. I wonder, I'm pretty sure you, you can link with this, uh, relate so much with this, right? Yeah, I absolutely can. In fact, just, you know, what I find really fascinating is that you said that at a very young age, you could see uh, the, the disparity in what we say and what we do. Um, and, and the values that we're, you know, brought up with and how the world around us works. And th that, it also makes me wonder because one of my earliest memories uh, as a child is also, you know, accompanying my mother to, I don't remember it was a bank or uh, maybe a passport office, something, but something official where she was asked to write down her um, husband's name in the application form. But my dad wasn't asked to write down his wife's name, you know? And I was just like, why? Like, that doesn't make any sense. If, you know, why, why do you as a woman have to write down your father's name or your husband's name? It makes, it made no sense to me, but it was accepted. And, and, and my mother, like she recognized that there is this inequality, but she had accepted it. So I love the, from your story, I love that, that 
childlike sense of, you know, pure justice and equality that we're born with. We're not born with that feeling of, hey, I'm different from you or I'm better than you. It's sort of something that happens to us as we grow up. Uh, but you, you, you held on to that. You held on to that feeling of, hey, this is not right. This is something is off here and the world is not as it should be. Yeah, for uh, it, it was at so many different levels, right? We, we named the social uh, economic uh, access, but it was also, uh, I was told repeatedly, not by my immediate family, but, you know, society saying, oh, you're too brown, you're too dark, so you're not beautiful. Uh, or you're a woman and girl, so you're less deserving. And uh, I think the warrior in me was just uh, woken up from this. You know, I mean, six are warriors, right? So yes. <laughs> and I thought that's not right. Uh, that's that's not okay. You cannot say that. We are all equal. And yeah, just uh, stayed with me, and I realized that okay, then I would like to be uh, countering these beliefs. And, uh, I want to do my best to make people around me not feel that way. Yes. And, and that's something that has continued on, right? When you started to work and you found that the work cultures around you, even in very reputable organizations that are out there to do good in the world, especially, in, especially in those. <laughs> <laughs> well, I still remember I was looked down upon in the UN because I was very friendly with all the secretaries and I knew the names of the cleaners and uh, the other uh, associates of mine. They just didn't understand. And uh, I think my position, uh, my social position dropped because of that. Uh, oh. And I sensed it, but I didn't care. Um, it was a bit hard. Yeah. <laughs> And and well, what gave you that strength? I mean, because I, I can also imagine when there's so much against you and there are people telling you from, you know, the people who surround you at work or in your culture um, are trying to enforce certain expectations of you. And But you know in your heart that something is not right or something is very right and that you need to follow that. What gives you the strength to keep fighting against that current and swimming in the direction that you feel is right for you? Uh, I think it's probably a combination of things. Uh, it, I can probably give most of my credit to my DNA, uh, which uh, I can't take credit for. I, I come from a family of very strong women, uh, but also men who fought for their uh, for their values and their rights. So our childhood was full of stories from our own family where people uh, worked for this equality and rights and justice. So I had good role models within my family who also supported me, uh, which gives you then that confidence to, to stand because we are not individual creatures. You need to have your tribe. And I still say that at this moment also, everybody needs to go out there and find their tribe, find their community to support them. If you don't get it from your family or from your current work or, or space, I, I think it, it cannot be one individual who does this mm -hmm. alone. So I was uh, supported, but I also, was luckily confident enough to just stand there and say, I am here, I exist, I can do it the way I like to do it. So <laughs> a bit of stubbornness. <laughs> yeah, that, that that goes a long way, right? And I, I guess the, the knowing that your family, um, that you come from a family that would ultimately appreciate that that courage, it probably also gives a lot of strength. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, so tell me about, so we stopped at, you were at the UN and there were 
of course, you noticed a lot of inequality in an institution that is supposed to uh, create a more just world. What what drove you to then move forward and get into conscious capitalism, creating conscious business? What was the story from there on? Um, well, maybe I can talk about uh, two or three incidents, which which sort of are moments in this journey. Uh, of course, they, uh, I always say there are a million decisions I made which led me to this particular uh, thing I'm doing. But uh, a couple of key moments stand out for me. And um, I think the first one would be my first day of work at the UN. Uh, this is way back uh, at the United Nations in Bangkok. And my boss, he uh, took me out for lunch and he sat me down and he says, uh, uh, Mansi, you're starting your new career, so you need to choose an approach for it. And you can choose to dazzle them with your brilliance or you can baffle them with bullshit. <laughs> and and he said, well, 99% of the people here fall in the latter category. And that was like such a moment for me where I thought, oh, my God, this, you know, it's, it's like the scales fall from your eyes. And being an idealist, I thought, yeah, that can't be right. So I set out for the next 10 years working internationally, looking for that meaningful work, looking for that human centeredness and connection. And I didn't find it. So it, so disillusionment didn't happen in one moment. It was me trying in many spaces to, to find that and, and finding I don't belong here. It doesn't fit me. And so at some point, uh, and that's like the second incident, where being an environmentalist, I knew a lot of the data of uh, the climate data, what's going on. But at some point, um, it entered my soul. Uh, and that was the start of uh, a period of in deep anxiety and grief for the planet. And uh, I, there was no term for it, which I knew at that time. But now I know it's known as eco-grief. Uh, mm -hmm. And I uh, talk more and more openly about it. It took me many years to open up about also this many months of darkness and and grief, really. Uh, and that was a turning point for me. And I think uh, when I read about uh, a lot of conscious leaders and purposeful readers, I, uh, leaders, I really um, notice how crisis is often something which drives them towards purpose. Uh, well, unfortunately. Um, but uh, so for me, this was the crisis which thought, okay, I need to make a change. I cannot go on working in this way. I stepped out of that anxiety uh, with a very uh, strong purpose and a North Star saying like, yeah, this is where I want to go. It still went really chaotic for many years until I heard uh, in a very nice conference uh, in Rotterdam, Raj Sisodia, who is the co-author with John McKee of Conscious Capitalism. And uh, I had been trying to be a conscious consumer for a really long time uh, by that time. And I had nothing to do with business. I didn't at all think I would ever be working in, <clears throat> sorry, a business scenario. But uh, hearing Raj, something moved in me. And I really, uh, he talked about how a business can only be as conscious as its leaders. Mm -hmm. And at that point, it struck me, what if we can just help a lot of business leaders change? Then they have such power and influence on their companies and businesses, you know, and businesses such a strong force in our economic system uh, it was somehow an invitation for me to step into that space, uh, which literally was an invitation by Raj uh, and some other people as well. And so started our 
conversations within the Netherlands on uh, how can we start a chapter on conscious capitalism in the Netherlands. Uh, I can tell you uh, in a while a bit more about it. Uh, and we set it up not as conscious capitalism, but as conscious business, which resonated more in terms of name, but also in the way uh, we want to transform business uh, here with uh, a, a group of people, including the Impact Center Erasmus and uh, uh, many other amazing people who are part of this journey, not in Holland, not only in Holland, but also in Europe. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, and I, um, I would love to know a little bit more about that, and I have a lot of questions about that. But before we get into that, I um, I was struck by your account of your time in the UN, right? That you sense this general apathy um, towards the environment, towards human beings working in that organization. And it's something that I always wondered, also partly because... I was lucky enough to go from studying and land up in an organization that is very purpose-driven. So I always, I, I, I don't see why you would have an alternate model where it's just about extracting value and it's just about, you know, going through the motions and making profit. And, and I, I just don't, I guess I understand it logically, but I don't feel it in my heart. I don't understand it deep inside how that would be the case. And I'm just curious to hear your view on why is there this general apathy towards the environment, towards people, towards, um, yeah, and this deep sense of, you know, self-interest and above other people's needs and above the society's needs. Why does that exist in our society right now? Um. You really like asking difficult questions, right? I'm sorry about that. I know. <laughs> I really do. <laughs> uh, well, where could one begin? It could be uh, uh, capitalism. It could be the, uh, the move to individualism. It could be uh, trauma coming from uh, all the scarcity uh, that human beings have faced uh, for the past so many hundred years. And uh, while capitalism has brought a lot of value and a lot of uh, increase in uh, you know life quality and um, uh, and support for women uh, uh, women's abilities and their position in society it has also brought with it uh, this inequality uh, growing inequality between rich and poor and that just makes it harder for uh, for people to survive and i think when people are in a survival mode and it, there's always this threat hanging uh, above them of, okay, if I don't have enough money, I'm not really going to uh, make it and there's all going to be all that suffering, then people don't have time to uh, to think at a broader level and for each other. You, 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 if you're stuck in survival mode, you're stuck in that, uh, yeah, you, you cannot think in a systemic uh, kind way. Yeah. And I think our societies and our governance systems have just brought us to this yeah I, I, I don't know if that's the answer you were looking for but uh, that yeah. seems to me a critical part of it you know yeah uh, and, yeah go on you know and and, and that's uh, that, that that was also my hunch right that's when I look at capitalism as a system uh, it has a lot of merits, right? The the philosophy, the principles behind the free market, uh, the the choice that people have um, in their lives and in bringing prosperity to themselves and the world around them, that is all great. 
But I, I feel like fundamentally there is this disregard for exactly what you said, for people who are who are below the poverty line or who are not in a state where they can really, uh, that they have the capabilities to contribute to a society that's set up that way. It's completely unjust, right? They don't necessarily have the freedom. It's only on paper. Um, you have freedom when there's development. There's this uh, book by Amartya Sen, right? Development is Freedom, which is just amazing, very difficult read, but brilliant. But th- that's that's the piece of capitalism that I was always missing, that there's the freedom in itself happens when people are, you know, they, 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 they have that opportunity and they are developed and it's not that they are expected to exercise freedom when they're below the poverty line fighting for their survival. That doesn't work, right? And I think there's another important piece here, which is uh, one is in our uh, our uh, move towards effectiveness and being efficient, because that's what capitalism and industrialization is a lot about, right? Let's let's make it effective. Let's scale up, and that worked at that time, like 200 years back. It, it was fine, but at some point, what that effectiveness and and that's also the silos, and that's also you know everybody just focused on their own little piece. Uh, what it brought us is uh, what, uh, well, one of my favorite uh, world leaders, thought leaders at this moment is Charles Eisenstein. And he talks about the story of separation, uh, se- separation. And he, uh, you know, when, and there are more people talking about it. it. This It just alienates human beings from each other, from the nature. And uh, we are not, con- and if we feel not connected to nature, we don't, see the impact of our actions uh, around us and it's it's becomes like the jungle law survival for yourself but actually even in jungle there's a very wonderful harmony the way things move things are interconnected and uh, so I think the narrative which we have been brought up with which have been told needs to be changed and um, maybe some simplicity and more interconnectedness needs to be brought in into the education into the stories that we tell. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah. then tell me about uh, conscious capitalism and how, how does that change the narrative that is currently predominant? Um, well, um, t- uh, taking it from the business perspective, of course, business uh, being a very strong force uh, in the world, uh, part of the bigger system, um, we believe that business has the power to elevate humanity, which is the core purpose of conscious capitalism, uh, as we call it, conscious business here. And the four tenets, uh, the four pillars of conscious business are um, higher purpose, uh, conscious leadership, uh, conscious culture, and stakeholder inclusion. And when you look at it, it's really a holistic business model, which which is there. Everything is in it. So, you know, it's really looking at, uh, let's say, purpose, which is the why, why do you exist? You know, just like a human being, uh, a conscious leader, I think purpose is at the core of a human being. Uh, you know, we talk about the ikigai of individuals. I think it's the ikigai of an organization. And the purpose, higher purpose is so important. Why did the business come into being? It cannot be just to make money. That cannot be the goal. I mean, the goals of our life is not to earn a salary. That's, that's not why we exist. Uh, so it's remembering like what's your true star. So we help businesses remember this, like why do you exist? And the profit is a means to an end. It's not the end to itself. Uh, then we move to uh, 
a conscious leader. And like I said, con- like Rod said, also a business is only as conscious as its leaders. And uh, uh, leadership uh, is very much, again, purpose-driven, coming from the heart. Uh, it involves values of appreciation and gratitude uh, for other people who are working with you. It's keeping uh, your eyes on the purpose of the whole community or the organization as a whole. Uh, there are also many other values uh, which a conscious leader hold, and we, that can be another conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I actually think uh, leadership is at the core of it, uh, of it all. Uh, leadership and purpose is a nice dance together, and and then that forms the culture, uh, and the culture is very much uh, around. Um, when you have employees or people who look forward to going to work, uh, you know, they know that it's not just a nine to five thing. You know the purpose uh, of the organization very well. You are aligned with that purpose. Uh, they have good uh, balance in their work and life or integration or whatever you call it. You have happy and engaged people because happiness is uh, is so important, you know, uh, mm-hmm. with uh, it, it's it's really uh I think it's at the core also of having a good conscious culture, uh, having fun, because I think fun is just taken out of our workplace, right? Oh, you you are at work now, so you've got to be super serious. I really struggled with that also in all my jobs. And I just thought, but, you know, why can't why do we have to keep humor out of this uh, or, or play? You know, you need play for innovation. You need fun. You need that happiness. Um, and then. Yeah, just giving employees a chance to express themselves. It's about trust, you know, uh, just you know it. You you work in such an organization, I believe. So you know how it is. And finally, and this is, I think, one of the most interesting piece uh, is the stakeholder inclusion, because uh, knowing that your business is not just limited to the uh, number of stakeholders that you most obviously see your primary stakeholders, which is most businesses do think about that your employees your customers your uh, suppliers um your um service providers uh, but or your investors your shareholders but actually going beyond that and really looking at uh, hey uh, are the communities in which we operate uh, part of it is the environment uh, a stakeholder because it is so when you start looking at it in this way and you start saying how can we operate in a way how we can only achieve our purpose if we include our stakeholders with us. And then we reach a win-win-win scenario. And I think when a company starts to do uh, work on any one pillar, it, it will start to reinforce the other pillars. And that's the magic of it also. You, you think you're only working on one thing, but actually you start to see results in other spaces as well. And there are examples of this from, from businesses where they, where they had that. And yeah, that's, I think, the magic of conscious business. Yeah. And and what I really like about that model is that it's not, business is not seen as a, you know, you win or you lose, like a zero-sum game. It is, it is connected. It is interdependent. You look at it, look at it like the whole system, uh, as opposed to just one thing that you're going after that I need to be profitable and I need to make more money. But it's about everything else that goes with it, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and... Um, and business is not linear, right? It's very systemic uh, and it's it's not about constant growth. So um, uh, one thing which I didn't mention, but I think it's crucial within this thing is the inclusion and diversity. Uh, so 
you need to include different voices of different people. That's the only way we can be part of a living system of community uh, and have a better future for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned that when you start working on one of the tenets, the others sort of fall in line. Which ones would you start with? Is it, is it, would you just pick any of them? Or would, from your yeah. experience, would you start with one particular tenet? Well, I, I think different businesses, uh, you know, looking at uh, case studies, which we, have, uh, which we have studied so far, or people, businesses we are working with, it can really start anywhere. Um, you know, some companies are businesses are busy with finding a purpose, but there you need uh, uh, you need conscious leadership in any way because you can't move without that. Uh, but others start from the culture and then they realize, oh, we need a purpose. Uh, we we can't go further because you know you realize you can only go so much with with part of it, doing part of it. So you could go a long way and still have a great culture and atmosphere, but realize, okay, to, re- to make a real big impact, we need to start now uh, being, uh, working with our stakeholders because you, otherwise you get limited there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some um, others, they start with, well, just to give you an example, um, uh, there is uh, the company NS, which is the railway company in the Netherlands. Uh, they wanted uh they they have a agreement with another company called Vivejo, which does the cleaning of their trains now uh Vivejo is a company which is very uh focused on its culture uh and they want to have good uh they want to have good uh, arrangements for their employees so their employees can have a good working conditions right so they told ns yeah this is not really good for our employees if they have to work late at night to clean the trains and go to like these faraway places. And it's not really uh, working so well for us. So how can we find a solution together? Well, this is a stake, two stakeholders talking about, you know, uh, mm-hmm. making life better for their own employees. And at the end, they came to a conclusion that, uh, all right, uh, why don't we use the, the what they call dal urine, like when it's not so busy, the hours which are not peak hours, mm-hmm. non-peak hours to, uh, clean the train so the cleaners would be uh, uh, coming in when it's less busy and cleaning while there are still some uh, people traveling. Now, as such, it was a great solution, but some of the added magic that came with it, which they totally didn't count on, was the fact that uh, the people who were traveling, once they saw other people cleaning, they littered less because they had more respect. Oh, somebody cleans it. You know, It was more conscious like in their yeah. mind. And they, um, they, there was more safety because there were people coming in, keeping an eye on uh, what's going on. There was um, less demolishing uh, of, of properties because, you know, we, we all know there, there's research when things are clean and hygienic and green, you know, people take more care of their environment. Yes. But, but also for the people who were cleaning, they got more appreciation. They got more contact uh, from the other travelers so they uh yeah also you know if you would clean at night you don't meet anybody you don't even know why you're doing this and who is it helping so it was uh, such a beautiful little example and that's also um something that um really resonated with me was the role of 
conscious leaders in this whole thing, right? That's not just a tenet. It's actually more like a even a foundation to have leadership that is willing and capable to make those choices uh, to lead in a more conscious way. And that's also something that I found I, with the work that we do with transformations. It's exactly what you said. An organization cannot evolve beyond its leaders. So you, you start... You start with that, you know, you start with the leadership and the mindset. And one of the questions that I have for you, and I would love to hear your uh, stories in this regard, is how was your experience of working with leaders to help them see a different alternate view of business when, in fact, the current way business is set up might actually be very beneficial to the leaders at the top, right? Uh, Be it monetary benefit or power or prestige or whatever it might be the way the the way business is done at this moment really has a lot of pluses let's say for the leaders at the top so what has been your journey to change that change people's minds or help them see a different model uh, and embrace conscious leadership more um well to be honest um i'm um yet to be working with a lot of business leaders uh, at that level where um, I could have that kind of influence. But I have been working with a lot of uh, young professionals and a lot of, um, well, midterm professionals when I facilitate trainings on conscious leadership. Or And uh, I think in the end, the transformation, you can only sow seeds. You you can only sow seeds and you can only do that by modeling that yourself. Uh, change cannot happen because somebody else says you need to change. Yes. So this is a responsibility. It's an inner responsibility of everyone uh, to find their purpose, to find their, their uh, journey. Um, and uh, I do it by trying to be conscious of the way I uh, arrive in a space uh, by uh, showing what are by using different tools by by promoting participatory leadership where every voice is important and uh, uh, well for example last week uh, I was giving a speech at a business uh, event a CFO event and uh, I talked about conscious purpose and transformation and I got a lot of response after that uh, from uh, on LinkedIn or people coming to me later and say, oh, I think we need a purpose. I need a purpose. Uh, you know, so I just feel I, I've put a seed there and, you know, it's their own journey now to actually find it. I cannot find a purpose for them. Well, maybe I can if I do the coaching for them, but it's it's everyone's own responsibility. Uh, but also, I think, by asking powerful questions. So uh, at some point, uh, we were... At the, at the same event, I was outside uh, having drinks at the end and with two uh, CFOs who knew each other for many years. And it was very much at a superficial level, the conversation. And at some point, I asked the question to them, tell me something you wouldn't tell a stranger. And it was amazing how the two of them first, with you know, it was just an invitation from me to share something. I, I had no expectations, actually. But then they shared two really amazing, very personal, very vulnerable stories about Mm -hmm. themselves, which they didn't know of each other as well. And 
What I realized later, it was amazing. And I was very grateful. And I told them, I'm so grateful that you shared it with me. I'm not going to share it here. Um, but what I really realized is I just created space. And I was just holding that space with asking that question. But the journey, the steps they had to make to open up uh, was their own. And I think that's the best we can do. I love what you're saying that, you know, the stories that we tell ourselves and to the world um, really have that power because, yes, human beings can have a very strong desire to survive and have developed self-interest in that way, right, to accumulate more, to have that feeling of safety. But we do have an equally strong desire to have meaning in life and that purpose is a very important part of our being. Um, so, and, and that's actually, I. Um, that's actually what was one of the inspirations behind, you know, this podcast and calling it Dropping Your Armor, because um, with the conversations that I was also having with leaders, with their leadership teams, the, the moment you open a dialogue and ask people to share their story, the whole air in the room changes. It just completely shifts. And there's just so much more attention to us as human beings in this world around us and, and not, you know, as, as interconnected uh, beings as opposed to, hey, this is me on my island and I need to prove something. It just it just completely changes the entire dynamic and it's so beautiful. So I'm, I'm really connecting with what you're saying about storytelling. And I know you did some work on the art of conversation and um, uh, how storytelling actually helps people to open up. Do you want to share a little bit about your experience there? Um, I think you're referring to the art of hosting and the honesty. art of hosting. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> no, it's it's a, it's a, it's quite a mouthful. The whole term. It's the art of hosting and harvesting conversations that matter. Uh, yeah, that was a one of those life changing things for me to be part to become part of this community. It's actually known as the art of participatory leadership, uh, very much around collective intelligence and co creation, and. Uh, I did uh, a couple of trainings in there last years and uh, and I realized how powerful uh, this thing is for, for, so for somebody who's been sort of running away from hierarchy the whole life and bureaucracy. This was like the world I wanted to be in. And I saw um, how it is being applied in every dimension of our life, whether it's in health or in education or in business. You know, if you look at teal organizations, they are also about self-managed. Uh, and that's very much using participatory leadership uh, to manage uh, uh, and run their, te uh, their teams or their organizations. And yeah, I'm, I'm really super uh, enthusiastic uh, about it. And I think uh, this is one of the ways we need to work it's actually i think probably the core way to power up conscious business because every conversation we have needs to be participatory needs to be inclusive needs to be uh, having the voice from all stakeholders uh, and to do that you really cannot sit in a in, in a, a structure which is the way we have been sitting in uh, with one speaker speaking to you and the other people just listening because i believe Every time we meet, there's so much intelligence in the room. Yes. How can we harvest that? How can we harness that? And, and stories are powerful, right? Uh, I heard something really interesting last week from one of the stewards of the art of hosting, Mary Alice Arthur. She was speaking about the story of workplace, which we've been hearing, is very masculine, which is very competitive, 
And women tell stories in a different way. Uh, when I say women, I should say more feminine. Feminine stories are around collaboration. Uh, so, so there's like these two narratives about competitive and collaborative, and we need to shift our all our stories towards that collaborative. Uh, and I mean, that's probably uh, you should probably interview her for <laughs> for knowing more <laughs> about this. But it really appealed to me because I realized that was been that's been my own journey as well. You know, moving from a very competitive uh, childhood, you know, everything is so competitive in India with uh, everything. And coming to Europe and over time realizing I love being working with other people. I love the fact that I don't know everything, but there are other people out there who know stuff, who are so smart, who can who can get things done, which I don't yeah. understand at all. You know, I'm so glad and so grateful for that, right? Yeah. So yeah, why would I want to know everything? I don't. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's it's. I had the same experience. It's like <laughs> you're so you you're brought up to think that you need to know and be everything and just take accountability for everything. But it's just so much more freeing to know that you don't have to know all of that, right? And you also, when you do that, you give others the space to take accountability as well. And it's you know you're not just in it by yourself alone. So um, and yeah, and it's very happens right from that. Sorry. Because- and innovation comes through that because a different perspective, unexpected uh, stuff comes in. You know? Exactly. There's actually something we do um, as a part of, you know, uh, transformation journeys of, um, of of teams, but also of organizations. One of the practices that I found really just mind blowing is this uh, thing called what we call voices of the system, where we literally we have an hour, 90 minutes, and we bring people together from all parts of the organization or even outside the organization, like customers and other stakeholders, and just have them tell stories while the leaders, all they're doing is they're listening. They're really just listening with empathy and an open mind. And people are just sharing their stories of what's bothering them, what they're enjoying, what's hurting them, what's not. And the the kind of insights that emerge from just that storytelling there's no data report that can match that level of insight. And it's just such a powerful session um, th- that I think is, yeah, it just it just changes the game. You just see things that you don't normally see in your organization. Yeah, I love stories. Uh, and I also, uh, you know, one of uh, the storytelling tool with the art of hosting is very much also looking at listening lenses. You have the seven listening lenses. And when you are... Uh, doing storytelling in a, in such a facilitated, hosted way, and you offer audience a listening lens, you in fact start to gather other intelligence which you otherwise would not uh, have gotten back. So, uh, so there's like even deeper layers of stories you can access by using these kind of hosted tools. Yeah. Uh, and I love seeing that in action. So I've started that also on the conscious business, bringing people in and just. Uh, telling stories, but then offering the listening lenses so that we can uh, we can unpeel it uh, and unpack it in an even different, deeper way. And then, then before we let you go, maybe a final question or a final statement that I would like you to answer um, is this: So, when I drop my armor, dot dot dot. Um, when I drop my armor, uh, the love shines more and it helps other people to drop their armor. Ah, that's really nice. (laughs) 
Great. Thank you so much, Mansi. It was such a pleasure talking to you. And yeah, I wish you a very good day. Yeah, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Hope to get to know you more.